Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. On this episode, Gary Ginsberg talks about his new book, First Friends. Ginsberg, whose career spans politics and journalism, writes about the confidants of U.S. presidents and the influence they wielded. You'll learn about banker and businessman Bibi Rebozo, who Richard Nixon knew for 44 years, and civil rights leader Vernon Jordan, one of Bill Clinton's closest advisors for much of his political career and other presidential stories. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Gary Ginsburg, you have a new book called First Friends, which is a different take on presidential biographies. Tell me about the concept. Well, I have been endlessly fascinated by the American presidency since I was a kid. And as I grew older, I started to work on campaigns, and then I worked in the Clinton administration. And I started to notice this dynamic between the leader's best friend and the leader himself, and how that best friend could speak in a way that no aide or staffer could, you know, speak more bluntly, act more naturally. And I saw it with Warren Beatty in the Gary Hart campaign, how he would fly in for major campaign events and speak to the, the candidate in a way that, you know, no one else around him was at the time and say, you know, he would say all the time, stop acting and talking like a politician, Gary. And Gary would like get quite roused by that, but he would listen and he would change the way he spoke. And I also saw how he would relax and then at night with late night conversations, late night dinners. And then I saw the same dynamic at play in the, in the Bill Clinton campaign with Vernon Jordan and how they were of equal stature and what that allowed Clinton to get from Jordan in a way that he couldn't from anybody else who worked on the campaign and then in the administration itself. And so I, I thought, well, you know, this is an interesting dynamic. It's true in my life, you know, how my friends can relate to me in a way that co-workers couldn't or bosses certainly couldn't. So um, as I grew older and had this interest in writing a book, I looked at presidential literature to see if there was anything about that first friend. And curiously, there was nothing. There was books about first chefs and first butlers, first wives, first sons, but nothing about the role of the first friend throughout the American presidency. So uh, I, I saw the niche and I decided it's a really interesting new lens into understanding the men who've occupied that that job and how it's affected him emotionally as well as substantively and in many cases affecting real decisions. How did you ultimately make the decisions about the nine that would be included? Well, I knew I wanted to write about Bill Clinton, having worked for him and having, as I said, witnessed the, the Vernon Jordan relationship. And he was the one president I obviously could ask who was your best friend? And Bill Clinton, uh, as many of your viewers know, had a lot of friends. He had the friends of Bill during the 1992 campaign who rescued him during the New Hampshire primary when his campaign was teetering. So I, I called him. He was interested in the idea. I said, would you pick your first friend? He came back a few weeks later and said, it's Vernon Jordan. And I was fortunate because I had already spoken to Vernon Jordan 
about his relationship with Bill Clinton. So I was quite fortunate to have that that uh, merging. With Kennedy, I knew I wanted to write about him as well because he too was somebody who had a lot of friends and reveled in the friendships he enjoyed. I asked his daughter, Caroline, who was a longtime friend of mine. Uh, she fortunately didn't give me the obvious names of a Len Billings or a Dave Powers or a Ben Bradley, but she said, I'm going to give you the person who I think has kind of been lost to history. But from my own experience, I know was my father's and my mother's you know, very, very dear friend, and it's David Ormsby Gore. And it took me a while to figure out the story. Uh, you had to kind of dig for it. But when I discovered it, it was a real joy. Uh, and I hope you know, it was one of the more, I think, uh, substantive chapters in the sense of the role that Ormsby Gore plays in Kennedy's both life personally as well as his presidency. And then um, with some, they were kind of obvious. Joshua Speed and Abraham Lincoln, there have, there's a great book by Charles Strozer that details that relationship quite well. Uh, Colonel House was you know, another obvious choice, although there's never been a book about just their friendship. There have been biographies of House, but not about his specific relationship just with Wilson in the context of, you know, um, in some kind of digestible form. Um, some were just a total joy to discover, like Nathaniel Hawthorne and Franklin Pierce. I didn't know anything about it. My father-in-law actually gave me the idea, and I, I found that there's a really rich story there. And Madison Jefferson, you know, you know each of them individually, but I had no appreciation for the dynamic at play that allowed each of them to become who they were because of a friendship. Having a friendship doesn't seem to necessarily guarantee a successful presidency, however. Is that right? I agree. And I say that in the book. I said um, presidents who enjoy first friends, I think, are the better for it. And so is our country. But it is not by any stretch a prerequisite for a successful presidency, nor is it a, 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 a measure. If one has a lot of friends like George W. Bush, it doesn't mean you're going to have a successful presidency, unfortunately, in his case. And I talk about that in my preface because there was a concern expressed by somebody who interviewed Al Gore for the vice presidency. He was concerned that that the, that the then senator didn't have enough friends to be president. And ironically, uh, the person he lost to, George Bush, as I say, did have a lot of friends. But ultimately, I think because of the Iraqi war and the recession, is regarded as having a less than totally successful presidency. Donald Trump is not one of your profiled presidents, but we looked in our video archive and found a clip of him talking about what happens to friendships when you become president. Uh, let's yeah, let's show it. They started off by saying this will be a very short evening for Donald Trump. That was Donald Trump in those days. You know, now it's President Trump. I lost all my friends because of this position. I had friends. Hey, Don, let's go to dinner. OK, good, Richard. I'll go. Hey, Don, let's go. Okay, Larry, I'll see you later. We'll meet you at a restaurant in New York. And now they call me up. Mr. President, sir, uh, would you like to get together sometime? I say, loosen up. (laughs) Yes, call me Donald. You've known me for 30 years. Call me Donald. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. President. I appreciate it. (laughs) No, I lost all my friends because it's respect for the office. Let's face it. It's different. They used to be loose. They used to be great. You could sit back. I'm not a drinker, but you could sit back and have a drink, whatever the hell you're drinking. And now you can't do that anymore. You can't do it anymore. So I have to rely on people in Congress to be my friends. 
Gary Ginsburg, Donald Trump on the loss of friendships. What he's describing there is what is commonly described for presidents as the bubble that they go into inside the White House. What uh, are the challenges that that poses for a president being in that bubble? Uh, well, can, can, I, can I go back to Trump for a oh, second? Sure. I, saw uh, that, yeah. I saw that clip and um, it made me really want to do a chapter on Donald Trump and his first friend, and I spent a lot of time going around and around with somebody very close to him during the writing process to find that first friend because I knew that he spends a lot of time on the phone talking to friends. Um, there were two in particular that I was told about, Ike Perlmutter, who is the uh, founder of Marvel, and then a guy named Phil Ruffin, who was a casino mogul. And, and Trump talked all the time to both, of, both men, and I asked this person, who was in a position to know, were they first friends? And he said, not really, in the sense that the conversations were the type that you would have with a really close, intimate friend. It was more about how am I doing? And so I struggled with this person to identify that first friend. And at the end of the day, what we concluded was that Donald Trump really did not need a first friend as president. He was constitutionally not built for first friendships. He's a deeply independent man who never relied on a first friend, even in his rise to the presidency. And I, I think what he ultimately needed in the presidency in terms of that emotional support was the affirmation of the masses. And the way this person described it, it was really kind of his Twitter feed to shorthand it that gave him that emotional sustenance and that sense of confidence to bolster him throughout his, his term. And this person said, you know, we would go up to Camp David friends and family, but instead of relaxing as one would do with their friends, he sat in his cabin most of the day and would call around to supporters around the country to get that emotional support. And it was really more of this amorphous mass as opposed to any individual. Um, in terms of the, the you know, I, I think presidents have been able throughout history to maintain close friendships despite the barriers that come from being in the Oval Office. And in the modern times, as we've heard from I think President Obama, it was the desire to maintain that, that BlackBerry or that cell phone to allow that kind of constant contact. And certainly the White House, with its privacy, allows friends to come and go. And I think with President Obama, he said, I don't need any more friends than the ones I have. And he spent a lot of quality time, as he writes about in his uh, memoir, Promised Land, about, about having his friends by his side. Um, throughout his presidency to give him that emotional ballast. So I don't think that being in the White House in any way secludes presidents from their ability to maintain those friendships. Your nine chapters are very different kinds of friendships for each of the presidents. Are there any common threads among them? Yeah, I think the, the, the common thread is a deep and abiding friendship between the two individuals. Uh, friendships that were mainly based on um, rooting for the other, mutual interests, shared interests, um, a, a friendship that transcended time and place. And, and what I think this differentiates the first friend from a chief of staff or um, anybody else who serves at the pleasure of the president is the ability to speak to the president in a way that nobody else can and to relax the president in a way that no staffer or aide can because they have so much history together, so many shared experiences, both good experiences and bad experiences, that allows them to kind of speak in a shorthand 
and to understand each other in a way that nobody who is in the employ really can, can I think, get to. We have time to dig a little more deeply into a few of your chapters, and I want to start with the Bill Clinton-Vernon Jordan relationship, which uh, is chapter, is, the chapter title is Two Brothers of the South. Mr. Jordan died earlier this year. Let's listen to Bill Clinton eulogizing his friend. God, we were lucky he was here. Lucky he was our friend. Lucky that in this imperfect world, somehow he found us and we found him. When they closed that coffin today, I felt like a part of my heart was going to be pulled out of my body. felt like a man who had loved my wife and daughter with honor and helped them in a way I will never be able to describe, all the while doing everything else he was supposed to do. I just didn't want to let him go. Gary Ginsburg, reaction? Yeah, it was a very emotional moment for the president. I spoke to him after the funeral and, um, he felt that loss quite profoundly, and I think he still does four months later. It was an extraordinary friendship. Um, I write, it's the longest chapter in my book, in part because I was able to speak to both the president and the friend. I was able to speak to the first lady and her extraordinary friendship with Vernon Jordan. And what I discovered was that they were both, you know, two brothers from the South. It, it was so much, it defined so much of their friendship, their, their mutual um, desire to see the interests of Black Americans improved. Vernon Jordan worked, you know, for 22 years, um, becoming a civil rights icon. Uh, at the same time that Bill Clinton, as governor of Arkansas, was passing a lot of progressive legislation to improve the lives of Black, black Arkansans. Um, and so they were, they were bonded by a lot of shared interests, civil rights. They loved to play sports together, golf in particular. They loved politics and the game of politics. And so much of Bill Clinton's life was enriched and empowered by Vernon Jordan. I write extensively about when Bill Clinton lost his first re-election race for Arkansas governor in 1980. He was devastated, emotionally um, you know, just a shell of a man after the loss. He was the youngest ex-governor in American history. And Vernon had taken had met him three years earlier. He had met Hillary 11 years earlier and had already formed a real emotional bond with both. He flies down to Little Rock about a month and a half after the loss. And he walks into the kitchen of their new home. They've already vacated the mansion. And he speaks to Bill Clinton in a way that nobody else could. And he'd been couldn't have been calling around to all of his friends saying, what do I do now? I don't know what to do. I'm out of office. I'm too young. Do I take a job in California? Do I go become a university president? Do I join the, go into the private sector? Vernon Jordan goes down into that kitchen and over almost three hours with grits breakfast says, you need to stay in the game. You're too talented to quit right now. And he got through to Bill Clinton in a way nobody else did. And Bill Clinton at the end of that breakfast said, okay, I hear you. I'm going to stay in the game. And two years later, he was inaugurated as the next governor of Arkansas and stayed in the game. And 10 years later was the president of the United States. And there are so many other examples 
of where Vernon was next to Bill Clinton at a pivotal moment to help him, either in his rise to the presidency, his choice of a vice presidency, his um, his advice during the transition as the first black transition chair in American presidential history, and then the role he played throughout his presidency, throughout the Lewinsky uh, uh, you know, impeachment, uh, and then in his final 20 years after the post after his presidency, which leads to that beautiful eulogy at his funeral in March. Talk a bit about his role as the presidential transition committee chair and how important it was to guide the selections for the people who would serve in the Clinton administration. So it really begins with the vice presidential selection. Um, I was one of the, the, the kind of junior lawyers that were assigned to vetting different candidates. Um, he was the vice chair, and I, he was the person that Clinton kind of um, entrusted with making the first three calls to the three candidates that he really wanted that were on his true shortlist. And I don't think it's ever been disclosed before in a book, but his first choice was not Al Gore. His first choice was, depending on who you talk to, either Bill Bradley or Jay Rockefeller. Uh, Vernon told me it was Jay Rockefeller. Clinton says no, it was Bill Bradley. But Vernon made the calls. Both Senator Bradley and Senator Jay Rockefeller both declined to run. Jay Rockefeller interestingly said, I think you're going to lose, and I'm going to run for president in 96. Not the greatest choice. Bill Bradley just didn't want to be vice president and, and, and uh, turned it down in a meeting with Warren Christopher early in the process. And then Vernon called his very good friend Colin Powell and said, Governor Clinton wants to run with you. Are you interested? And Colin Powell didn't want to run. So then it went to the longer list, and Vernon was obviously a very key voice around the governor, you know, ultimately picking Al Gore, who ended up being a great vice president. Um, in the transition, what was interesting is that Bill Clinton wanted Vernon Jordan to be his attorney general. And he has him come down in late November of 92, and they sit in the back, the back uh, porch of the mansion, and he says, Vernon, I need you to be my attorney general. You will be the best attorney general I can have. There had been 77 white attorneys general until then. He wanted to break that. He wanted uh, somebody of color or a woman. He really wanted Vernon. And Vernon said to him, no, I can be more valuable to you as your first friend. And he was throughout the presidency. Whenever Clinton had a really thorny problem, he would say, call Vernon. And Vernon would come. And Vernon would give great advice. Um, on the transition itself, to your question, I'm sorry it takes so long getting to it, but he said to Vernon, I want the most diverse administration in history. And Vernon made sure that, in fact, in terms of the number of people of color, Latinos, women, it was the most diverse up to that time. They have become even more diverse since the Clinton presidency, but at that point, he was able to achieve his campaign promise of having the most diverse administration. You referenced Whitewater and and the uh, Ken Starr investigation, and we have a a clip because it is not the only chapter in which a first friend faces some legal or uh, certainly um, public relations challenges from their associations with presidents, and and Vernon Jordan was one of those. Here he is in uh, June, uh, January, sorry, of 1998 on the Clinton-Monica Lewinsky affair. I want to say you absolutely and unequivocally that Ms. Ms. Lewinsky told me in no 
uncertain terms that she did not have a sexual relationship with the president. At no time did I ever say, suggest, or intimate to her that she should lie. Gary Ginsburg, you write that there are some permanently unresolved questions about Vernon Jordan's role. What, what is known? Well, what is known is what was in the Star Report. The Star Report found no evidence that he had obstructed justice by offering her a job. I think the record does show that he was careful enough and smart enough to never directly want to know whether the president had a sexual relationship with Monica Lewinsky. And the good thing for Vernon um, is that Vernon made it a practice of helping people, younger people in particular, find jobs. He loved the role of being, you know, kind of the mentor. And he mentored and found jobs for literally hundreds, if not thousands of people throughout his career. It was part of his charm and part of why he was so beloved. And I, and I asked Clinton later, you know, did you ever speak to Vernon about this relationship? And he said, no. And I was smart enough to know that, A, I didn't want to implicate my friends. And he was, I think, frankly, you know, he was uncomfortable talking about any affairs with women other than his wife. And I, so I, I think Vernon was, was smart enough to know what to know and was able to then to get through 20 hours of grand jury testimony without perjuring himself and without implicating the president. So that, you know, the president ultimately was impeached on counts that were unrelated to, um, to Vernon. And Vernon uh, obviously was never charged and, and was, uh, was never you know, formally in any way implicated in it other than as a witness. You write about the personal role that he took with the first lady and Chelsea Clinton. And it seemed that the president himself was referring to that in his eulogy, the special role he played with his uh, spouse and daughter. What, in fact, did Vernon Jordan do as that family faced that personal crisis as well as a political one? This is this has never been reported before. It's my knowledge. Um, after the president confessed to Hillary that it was, in fact, a sexual relationship and then confessed to the nation, um, you know, they take that trip to, to Martha's Vineyard. They spend time with Vernon. I believe it was after they got back to the White House when Bill Clinton, so it's sometime in September of 98, Bill Clinton asks Vernon Jordan to go speak to Hillary to tell her, to, to, to convince her, persuade her not to leave the president. Um, I think things had gotten so bad between the two of them that she was seriously contemplating it. And um, as Bill Clinton told me later, he was the only person that he could trust to have such a conversation. and. To Hillary, he was the only person that had her respect such that whatever he said would resonate and be meaningful. So he, in that moment, really did play the ultimate first friend role. That's the only time in my book where a first friend played such a crucial role in maintaining the, French, maintaining the marriage between a president and the first lady. Did Whitewater investigation test their friendship? Was there, did it ever get breached? I think it did test the, the friendship and then I think President Clinton felt guilty about putting Vernon inadvertently, according to the president, and I believe him, into that 
uncomfortable national spotlight as a, you know, as a witness and as a potential obstructor of justice. I don't think when, when Betty Curry called Vernon and asked Vernon to meet with Monica Lewinsky to help her with a job, did the president ever think that it would end up resulting in 20 hours of grand jury testimony? And so much spotlight on a man who was used to playing a more behind the scenes role um, as he did when he left the, the Urban League and you know went into private practice. And I think that it was unresolved actually for a couple of years. And they, I write at the end of the book about a late night, just I guess bull session between the two of them. It's sometime in either late December or early January of 2000, 2000 2001 when Vernon gets a call from the president on a Saturday late afternoon. He says, can you come have dinner with me? And Vernon, being as independent as ever, says, I already have a dinner, but I can come see you around nine o'clock. And so at nine o'clock, he drives up to the South Portico and he goes upstairs into the White House kitchen on the second floor. And they spend six hours talking. And I think, and I've confirmed this with the president, the President Clinton, that they had never really talked about what it meant to have both gone through that process and whether there was any lingering anger on the part of Vernon that he was thrust into that role. And I think it was really important for President Clinton to have that six hours over a $10,000 bottle of uh, wine, which I think Vernon did most of the drinking because the president doesn't drink, or they may have just wasted a $10,000 bottle. But it was really important to President Clinton that he aired out and that he... I think was reassured at the end of that six hours that Vernon did not hold it against him, that Vernon did not think that Bill Clinton had intentionally put him in harm's way by, by, um, by helping find Monica Lewinsky a job in New York. And as I write at the end of my book, the Vernon gets back in his red Cadillac convertible and he starts driving down the South driveway and he's overcome with emotion realizing that he has just left the White House probably for the last time with his closest friend in the world, the most powerful man on the planet, having this no-holds-barred conversation for six hours. And he's halfway down the driveway when his eyes start to well up with tears. And he realizes, here I am, the son of a postman, grew up in the first public housing project in the United States, and I just had this conversation. He stops his car. He tears up. He puts his head on the steering wheel. He waits some period of time, and then he turns the car back on and drives out the driveway. And it was a really, for me, a particularly emotional moment to hear that story told by Vernon and, um, and then to talk to the president about what it meant to him. Richard Nixon and B.B. Rebozo. <clears throat> if Bill Clinton had a thousand friends, how would you describe Richard Nixon's attitude about friendship? It's a great question. Um, he was not a man who had a lot of friends, Richard Nixon. Um, Dwight Eisenhower, I found this great anecdote, goes to visit uh, his vice president in the 50s. He's in the hospital for a couple of days. And he comes back from the hospital and he says to his assistant, it's the damnedest thing. He has nobody around him. How could a man who's in such a position of authority have no friends? And, you know, if you look at Richard Nixon's life, he had... BBS's his first friend. He had one or two other friends that, you know, would qualify in a conventional sense of friendship. But as somebody said, um, his first friend was really his yellow legal pad. 
that was that was the person he felt or the object that he felt most comfortable with. But with B.B. Rebozo, it was a it was a really a study of contrasts. Nixon was this intellectual. He was dark and brooding. Rebozo was a high school graduate whose first job was as an airline steward. Um, but somehow it worked. And I think it worked because Nixon had enough common sense to know that he needed a friend to break him from his moodiness. Nixon could sit in silence for hours with Bibi, and they often did sit in silence. But Bibi knew just the right moment to interject with a quip, with an anecdote, to break that kind of moodiness and lift Nixon back into the world. And that was the role he played. He was his raconteur. He was his entertainer. He was his chef. He would, they would mix martinis together. They would grill steaks together. They would take boat rides together. They would sit at Camp David weekend after weekend and watch movies and get drunk. Frankly, there's a great anecdote in my book about how they just tied one on one night while Henry Kissinger is back at the White House trying to figure out how to bomb Cambodia. And finally, he just puts... Uh, Bibi on the phone, and they're both pretty sloshed. And Bibi says, hey, Henry, it's your ass if this doesn't work out well. And this is to the future Secretary of State. You know, it's, it was a pretty astonishing moment for, for Kissinger, who retold the story for years and years afterward. Um, and then ultimately, it's a story of a loyalty that doesn't have any boundaries when Nixon asks Rebozo to help aid and abet his most nefarious schemes to secure his power and hurt and punish his enemies. And he takes a $100,000 bribe from Howard Hughes in 1970. And as I write in my chapter, I think that that is the impetus for the later bugging of the DNC headquarters at Watergate and then Nixon's impeachment and resignation. We have uh, uh, people listening to this will know that Richard Nixon taped his Oval Office calls. And we have one from 1972 where the two men are talking. And it's really just a way to listen to the rapport between the two of them. Let's play it. I'll tell you, they just, they just didn't dream that you would do this in election year. Yeah. Well, it'll, uh, it'll, it'll, of course, probably, as they've already said, uh, most people think it'll sink the Russian summit, but I don't, I don't think so. I but think if it so. does, what the hell? I don't think it will. I think they're going to want it all the more. Well, I don't know. You didn't say a thing about China. I tell you, it was just a magnificent thing. I've never had such a reaction on anything. Never. My phone was ringing off the hook. When people don't normally call, they might express themselves later. But it was just a phenomenal thing, and the reaction is just... The uh, call's all male. <laughs> I told Bob... Happened <laughs> I, I No, I told Bob Haldeman last night. One woman called, and I didn't know whether she was drunk or just emotional, mm-hmm. crying. Mm-hmm. And I don't know who she was. I didn't want to ask her. <laughs> and how she got my home number, I don't know. <laughs> Probably got it off of the off of the wall of some toilet. <laughs> really easy conversation between the two of them. Uh, so, yes. what, what do you make of that 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 level of uh, of conversation? Yeah, I think that was very typical of their relationship. You hear the cheerleading, right? I haven't gotten so many calls. Everybody loved it. Um, that was his role. He was there to provide uh, uplift. Uh, as I say, to to be a cheerleader, I, Pat Nixon was quite disparaging of it. She described Bibi as quote a sponge, that he never gave Nixon a hard time. He never fought back. Interestingly, though, he, I found one example where he did, and I and I and I give him more credit than he probably has 
received for his first, first friendship. In 1967, Nixon's struggling with whether to run for the presidency in 1968. And Bibi Rebozo is so ingrained as first friend. He's exceedingly close, not only to Nixon, but to Pat and the two daughters. He's basically, um, he's the godfather to Trisha's son. He's very close to Trisha. And what I read in my book is that he says to Nixon, don't run. And the reason why he does is that he saw better than anybody the emotional toll that losing in 1960 and then 1962 when he loses the California governorship. He saw the toll that it exacted on Pat most, most, most particularly, as well as the daughters. And I, I suggest, and there's evidence to support it, that Nixon may have beat Pat Nixon. Julie Nixon denies it, but others like Cy Hirsch uh, believe that it was so. But there was clearly a lot of pain that went through the family as a result of those losses. And Rebozo selflessly says to Nixon, don't run. It will exact the same toll again if you lose. Nixon obviously goes on to win. And Rebozo, right, becomes the first friend. He's the most celebrated first friend, I think, in history because of modern media. I grew up as I was a 12-year-old, and I watched B. Rebozo and was transfixed by this dapper man who was always by Nixon's side. But I think he did provide Nixon with a respite and an emotional companionship that he certainly never had with Pat and didn't have with any other uh, figure in his life. How should we process the, this one factoid that you report in the book? From Nixon's second inaugural to his resignation, the space of 20 months, Richard Nixon took 60 separate trips to Camp David, Key Biscayne, or San Clemente with B.B. Rebozo as his sole companion. Yes. I mean, that goes to the point. I don't think he had any kind of relationship with his wife. Um, B.B. was the perfect companion. He spoke when Nixon wanted to converse. He stayed silent when Nixon didn't. I talked to somebody very close to Richard Nixon who witnessed this relationship throughout. And he said that the reason why Nixon liked him is even though he was, Nixon was the intellectual and Bibi was the anti-intellectual, when he was down, he didn't want to engage intellectually. He didn't want to engage socially. He just needed to be on his own. And essentially by being with Rebozo, he was on his own because Rebozo could just sit there with him. There's a great anecdote that John Dean tells me where um, there, the Secret Service was upset because Rebozo insisted on driving cars when Nixon was president and driving the boat. And the Secret Service goes to John Dean, the White House counsel, and says, that's against protocol. We got to drive the boat. We got to drive the car. Dean works out a, a compromise where Rebozo will drive the boat, but the Secret Service agent will sit up above the boat. So they go off on a boat trip, and it's an hour into the boat trip, and the Secret Service agent doesn't hear a word from below. It's like, this is so odd. These two guys are going out for a boat ride and not a word's been exchanged. So he climbs down, he peers into the stateroom and there's two men literally just sitting there, just staring out at the sea and not saying a word. He watches for another hour. Nothing is exchanged. So the Secret Service agent goes back and he tells Dean this. And Dean's fascinated. It's like, how? How does that work? So he calls up the agents who do the walks in San Clemente. He says, what do you witness when the two take these long walks on the beach? And the same thing is told to John Dean. They walk in silence. But Nixon, as I said, was had enough 
sense to know that left entirely alone, he would get too dark and he would play to his worst angels or his worst, his worst fears and his worst instincts. So he at least wanted companionship around and the companionship knew when to interject to make sure he didn't descend to too great a depth. What happened to Mr. Rebozo over the legal issues you, you referenced? He ultimately only paid uh, an IRS fine for unreported income from this $100,000 bribe that he took from uh, Howard Hughes. Some of that money went to Nixon for a putting green and other home amenities. Some went to Rosemary Woods. Some went to Nixon's valet. Um, and I, as I said in my book, I really think that Nixon was so paranoid about this loan and what Larry O'Brien knew, because Larry O'Brien had been a PR consultant to Howard Hughes when that loan was made or that bribe was made. And Nixon was afraid that he had the goods and was going to use it. And I think that was part of why he wanted his office bugged. There's been no definitive evidence to show that, but um, there's enough in the, in, the, in the Senate report that was eventually, uh, it came to light in 2005 to, that Terry Lenzner also writes about in a book to suggest that Nixon was so afraid of that coming to light that he bugged the headquarters. Did the friendship survive Watergate? It did. It did. And I end the chapter um, with an anecdote uh, where Nixon goes to a, uh, to a, a charity event that Rebozo is, is, is holding um, to, to speak for him. And they were best friends right until the, till the end. And in fact, there's a, I was going to end it with a different conclusion where Rebozo was basically um, making sure that Pat Nixon could be buried at the library. There was a California law that, that prohibited that because Nixon really wanted Pat buried there. And then he ultimately wanted himself to be buried there. Rebozo played the same role um, in Nixon's post-presidency that he played during his presidency. He was the best friend right till the end. We have 20 minutes left in our conversation, and I want to spend 10 minutes on two presidents whose first friends had significant foreign policy implications. The first is Harry Truman and Eddie Jacobson. Uh, we're going to talk, uh, listen to Harry Truman talking about Harry Jacobson and prejudice against Jewish people in this clip from the early 1960s. I found in the United States a lot of bigotry and opposition to Jews as such, which I could never understand for the simple reason that the Jewish people gave us our moral code entirely. And I had a, a partner when I first got out of the uh, White House and moved back to Kansas City, a uh, fellow by the name of Eddie Jacobson. And he and I started a haberdashery store and we went broke and lost a lot of money. I, I furnished the money and Eddie furnished the know-how. And when we went broke, why, they forced Eddie into bankruptcy. They couldn't put me into bankruptcy because I was on the county court. That was uh, long before I was president of the United States. I said it was afterwards, but it was before. And, of course, when the thing was all over and Eddie became prosperous after that, he met his share of those losses. And that's my idea of a good Jew. Gary Ginsburg, what was the nature of their relationship? So they met in 1903 when Truman was a bank teller and Eddie was uh, a 16-year-old running down to the bank to deposit on behalf of a company that he was working for. 
They didn't really stay in touch for the next 14 years. They then meet in the army. They're both training to go over to Europe. They're in the same infantry, same unit. And Eddie had a real way with making money. And he figures out how to professionalize the canteen that Truman, as kind of the leader of the group, was in charge of. And they have two successful businesses uh, that I write about in the chapter. So when they come back from the war, they're friends, they're business associates, and they decide, let's start this haberdashery, as Truman just says in that clip. And it's a failure, not because they didn't know what they were doing. It's because commodity prices dropped in the early 1920s, and people lost their ability to buy nice shirts and ties. So Eddie stays in the haberdashery business for the rest of his life. Truman goes on to become, obviously, president. Where the relationship becomes so consequential is in 1948. Um, Truman has a very difficult decision to make. What do you do with the land of Palestine? Now, Truman was never known as a great friend of the Jews, um, even to Eddie. Eddie was never allowed into Truman's home. Truman lived in his wife's family's home, the Wallace home. uh, Truman's mother-in-law did not like Jews and never let Jews inside their home, nor did Truman's wife. But Eddie was fine with that. Eddie Eddie, uh, loved Harry Truman, and Harry Truman loved Eddie. And so in 48, he's got to decide what to do. And he's really frustrated because he's being lobbied very hard by Jewish leaders in the United States who are pushing Truman to support the partition plan that the UN had put forth that would create two states, a state for the Palestinians and a state for the Jews. And the partition plan passes, the United States supports it, but now it's becoming crunch time. It's between November of 47 and the end of the British mandate, which expires in May of 48. Now we're, we're in March of 1948. It's two months before the mandate ends. And he's, he's sick of the issue because, as he says, Jesus Christ couldn't please the Jews when he was alive. How am I supposed to please them? And whatever he says or he does, he doesn't think it's, it's, it's enough for those that he has been meeting with. And he just decides, I'm done with the issue. George Marshall, his secretary of state, is vehemently opposed to creating an independent Jewish state. He thinks that the Soviets will move right in. It will lead to war. It will lead to the annihilation of the Jews. And it won't serve American interests because the Soviets will be in the sphere and because oil may be cut off from American consumers. So Marshall's against it, as is the State Department. Truman has been supporting the Uh, the resettlement of Jewish refugees into Israel. And as you heard in that clip, he has a real affinity for the Jewish people as a man of the Bible. So he's, he's frustrated. He's not going to deal with it. Eddie Jacobson gets a phone call saying, fly halfway across the country. You got to lobby Harry Truman to see Chaim Weizmann, who's the most important person advocating for a Jewish state. He's sitting in New York. He's waiting to make his pitch. Everybody in the Zionist cause knows that unless he sees Chaim Weitzman, he's never going to get to a decision to support a state. He flies into the flies to Washington. He walks up the North Driveway. He walks into the Oval Office. He says, I want to see Harry, my friend. He's not invited. He has no appointment. The appointment secretary says, you can go in and see Harry. Do not bring up the Palestine issue. He doesn't want to talk about it. So Eddie walks in. They make small talk. He says, Harry says to him, well, what are you here for? Why would you fly across the country for this? He says, you got to meet Chaim Weitzman. Truman says, I am not going to deal with this issue. I'm sick of it. 
I've been hectored and badgered by all these Jewish leaders. I'm tired of this issue. Go away. Eddie says, "Uh uh-uh. Harry, you and I have been friends for 40 years. I know you. I know who your hero is. He points to a statue of Andrew Jackson. And he says, what would Andrew Jackson do? What were the values that Andrew Jackson held? You have a hero in Andrew Jackson. I have a hero in Chaim Weitzman. You owe it to yourself, and you owe it to me, and you owe it to the Jewish people to see Chaim Weitzman. You have to do it. So now Truman turns his back to Eddie, strums his fingers against the desk, turns back around, and he says, all right, you win, you goddamn son of a bee. I'll see him. Sees Chaim Weitzman nine days later, and then two months later, he is the first foreign leader to recognize an independent state of Israel 11 minutes after it's declared in Tel Aviv. It's, the, I think, the most dramatic moment of a friend being able to speak to a leader to affect world history. Well, in close, in close running, I'd say, is the story you referenced earlier of Jack Kennedy and David Ormsby Gore and the Cuban Missile Crisis. How did a man who was the British ambassador to the United States play such a consequential role in that pivotal moment in that presidency? The reason it was born of a 25-year friendship, a friendship of mutual interests. They both, they met as, as early 20-something men in pre-war London. They loved to talk fast. They loved to play fast. They loved to carouse. They loved to play golf. And they loved to argue. They love to argue about what is the role of a leader in a democracy. Is it to lead and not worry about where the electorate's you know, sentiments are? Like a Churchill who said, we have to rearm, and I don't care if the British voters are tired of war, the Germans are rearming, and we have to rearm now? Or is it like a Stanley Ball with Neville Chamberlain, which is to accede to the wishes of the electorate and then hope that they will come around to the right view? So they debate this issue for literally 25 years. And Ormsby Gore is of the Churchill mindset, that a leader is brought on this earth to lead and to do the right thing. And so by the time that Kennedy has to confront the Cuban Missile Crisis, he's, he's been the beneficiary of Ormsby Gore's really shrewd advice as somebody in the British foreign ministry who had risen up negotiating with the Soviets over nuclear disarmament. So he had a really great window into the mindset of the Soviet Union. And Kennedy had relied on him in 1958 when he's running for re-election against Cabot Lodge, and then in 1960 when he's running for president. He becomes his most important foreign policy advisor on the campaign as a British citizen, as you say. So now it's 1962, and it's day five of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and I begin my chapter with Kennedy getting this phone call from his brother saying, we got to decide whether to blockade or bomb. we got to decide what to do. So Kennedy goes back to the White House and he issues four orders of what he's going to do over the next 24 hours. And the fourth order is, I want to see David Wormsby Gore in the White House on Sunday morning. That's day six. So Gore comes to the White House uh, that, next, that Sunday morning and he's ushered into the residence and he sees Kennedy And Kennedy says, I need your advice now more than ever. We've been debating these issues in hypotheticals and abstracts for 25 years. Now it's it's the future of mankind at stake. And they have a no-holds-barred conversation. Should I bomb or blockade? Normsby Gore is of the firm mind that you've got to blockade. And then over dinner that night, they discuss, how am I going to discuss this with the American people in my national address the next day? And Normsby Gore 
gives him language to use. Two days later, he's back in the White House. They have a long schedule of dinner. At the end of that dinner, he goes to the long gallery and they spend hours. And I write at length about this. Here's the British ambassador. He says to the president, he's not the ambassador, he's the ambassador, I'm sorry. He's the ambassador. He says to the president, look, your speech last night did not play in Europe. No one believes you. They don't believe the CIA. You have to put out evidentiary uh, proof that these missiles really do exist. So Kennedy calls down. He says, I want all the pictures of the missile sites. And the two of them are crouched on the floor in the long gallery, actually looking at which pictures to release to the public the next day. And then Ormsby Gorse starts talking about the blockade. He wants to know the specifics. He's like, how many miles offshore of Cuba is it? He's told it's 800 miles. But Ormsby Gorse says, I think that doesn't give the British uh, ship, I mean, the, the uh, Soviet ships enough time to really think about the consequences of breaking the blockade. Let's move in the perimeter to 500 miles, give them more time. Kennedy's really intrigued by that. So Kennedy calls McNamara, they debate it. The question is, can Cuban planes reach at 500 miles when they can't reach at 800 miles? Kennedy doesn't care. He says, let's move the perimeter in. It's moved into 500 miles. Throughout that week, Ormsby Gore plays this very central role in advising the president. And there's one moment when Lyndon Johnson is sitting in an XCOM meeting, he's at the end of the cabinet table, and the door is banging against his chair. And he goes, I'm the vice president of the United States. And then she's this British, this British guy sitting right next to the president. I don't get it. What's going on? But most people around the president recognized that they were so in, uh, in a mind melt about how to confront foreign policy issues. And it plays out most dramatically the following year when Ormsby Gore is really the intellectual catalyst for the limited nuclear test ban treaty that Kennedy signs late in his life at the end of, uh, you know, the end of middle of 1963, end of his life, um, which I think ushers in the beginning of the end of the Cold War. And it's really a remarkable testament to their friendship and to the, 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 in, the leadership of Ormsby Gore on getting Kennedy to take disarmament as a is a big issue for him at the waning days of his presidency. Do you think there's a full book there? You said earlier that this story, but for Caroline, uh, would have been lost, somewhat lost to history. Why don't we know more about someone who had such a consequential no one? How did you find out as much as you did? Well, there, it, it, it's not that it hasn't been reported. Barbara Leeming, um, in um, the Education of a Statesman, uh, writes about it, and I, you know, so I give her enormous credit for kind of being the first historian to dig it out. Um, I think one of the problems is that Ormsby Gore gave only uh, seventy-seven pages of oral testimony at the Kennedy Library. I think it's essentially one volume. If you're going to look for a first friend, Lem Billings just screams because he gave fourteen hours of oral history of their enormously rich friendship. That starts at choke and extends right on through to the end. Lem Billings had his own um, his own basic bedroom on the third floor of the White House. And when you ask most people who was his first friend, if you exclude family, because Bobby was obviously so close to him, people say Lem Billings. But I think Ormsby Gore, in reality, was his first friend, as Caroline told me. I think he and his wife Sissy spent more time with the president and first lady than any other couple. Sissy Gore was told. The morning after Kennedy is is shot and killed uh, at this memorial service in the East Room of the White House, Jackie Kennedy walks around to all the 
the closest friends and family who are gathered for the kind of the first um, service in memory of the fallen president. And in a whisper, she says to Sissy Poor, you would have been the godmother to our son Patrick had he lived. They didn't know that because Patrick died a couple of days after being born. They were that close. And Caroline had known that and had told me that when she was telling me that Ormsby Gore was so close to her father and mother. And, um, and I think what gives it such an added dimension is they weren't just great pals, but that this friendship had such an impact on history, both in his intellectual kind of development as a statesman, John Kennedy, and then in his performance as president, as we saw both in the Cuban Missile Crisis and then in the limited nuclear test ban treaty. Here was a surprise line later on, Ormsby Gore proposed to Jacqueline Kennedy. He did, and I was not aware of that. Um, he did, it, we only know about that because letters that were exchanged between the first lady, the former first lady and Ormsby Gore were discovered in a trunk in 2017 at the Gore estate, the Harlech estate. And the family chose to put them up for auction and they were auctioned off at you know pretty princely sums and in those in that correspondence uh was a letter from Ormsby Gore to Jackie saying I want to marry you and a letter back from Jackie which I quote um in the chapter where she says there's just too much shared pain between us to ever find joy and if we're going to find that joy we have to do it apart from each other which is a remarkable testament to, I think, the real respect and love that they shared between the two, but the emotional maturity of, of Jackie to realize that it was they were so consumed by their shared grief over the, over the loss of the president uh, to ever really truly revel in each other's presence without that looming over them. What had happened to his wife? His wife died in a car accident. And Ormsby Gore for such a brilliant, talented man with such a life of tragedy. His older brother dies in a car accident. Ormsby Gore himself loved to drive cars very fast. His wife dies in a car accident. He himself dies in a car accident at the age of 65 in the mid eighties. He loses multiple children to uh, suicides or overdoses. Um, I talked to his daughter, Jane, who's a delightful woman. She thinks she's in her seventies. She was the inspiration for Lady Jane from the Rolling Stones. She had a sister who was engaged to Eric Clapton. It was a fascinating family. I'd love to go over there and, and actually meet them. Um, it's a dime, it's, it's, a, it's a lordship, uh, the Harlick, it's the Harlick family. He was a lord in waiting, David Ormsby Gore. Um, he didn't wanna be a lord. His older brother, as I say, died. And so he actually fell to him as the second son. And he ultimately does serve um, in the House of Lords and is a lord. But, you know, I think his defining moment was really being this first friend of John Kennedy and helping shape the relationship so profoundly between Great Britain and the United States during the early 60s. It was a really special time for a special relationship. Gary Ginsburg, we have about three, four minutes left and uh, kind of put some some closing thoughts on this. You've been interested in the presidency you write since elementary school. You've worked around presidents and presidential candidates. Did working on this project change your view of the office in any way? Yes. I, I, it, it, just of how lonely it is. And I think I was struck by that with FDR, whom we don't speak about. But 
here he is. You, the last thing you would think about FDR is a lonely man. His son obviously recognized it because he subtitles his memoir of his father, a lonely man. But I, I was really struck at um, that one friendship because FDR, despite fighting a world war and despite fighting a global, you know, a, a depression, is intensely lonely. And he says to uh, to Daisy Sukli, who is my first friend in the book, he says, I'm either exhibit A or left entirely alone. And I think all presidents, to some extent, feel that. Now, I think it was particularly difficult for Roosevelt because he had absolutely no home life. You know, Eleanor was a great crusader for the causes she cared about, and she was often away from the White House. And his kids were either at war or not, frankly, interested in providing their father with uh, an emotional presence. And I think you saw that certainly with Nixon. And I think you see it to some extent with, with all presidents, that it is a really lonely job. And that's why a first friendship is so important, because we experience that in our own lives, both you know, in moments of loneliness, wanting to have a friend, and in moments of great joy, wanting to have a friend to share with. Now imagine applying it to the most powerful person on the planet and how much more important it can be, both for good or how much, or for ill, you know, when it goes awry, as it did, I think, with Bibi Raposo. And that's why I thought it was kind of a rich topic for a book. And, um, and hopefully I, I tell nine good stories that, uh, that kind of reflect all of that. The book, as we've been talking about, is called First Friends. It's Gary Ginsburg's first book. I want to thank you for spending an hour with C-SPAN and sharing some of the stories that readers will find inside. We appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 